It's my joy to introduce to you Pastor Dusty White, coming to us from Corumdale, Omaha. Uh, and Dusty has, has been a longtime friend of Porterbrook, of, of Porterbrook Quad Cities, of Sacred City. Uh, we first came into uh, contact with Porterbrook through Corumdale, and before we took it in-house here, we were sending people over, over their way. And so um, I first met Dusty through Porterbrook, Omaha, uh, as a student over there, and uh, he was a, a frequent guest speaker there. He's on staff uh, as the pastor of, I don't know if I'm going to get this order right. Just Karen Counseling. Just, just Karen Counseling, pastor of Karen Counseling at Quorum Deo, and uh, we are incredibly excited to have him here this morning. So I'll let you share any other information about yourself that you want to, but please join me in welcoming and honoring Pastor Dusty. Hey, Ben. What's up, guys? Man, it's good to be here. It's even better to be here when there's like multiple churches in the room. And it's good to be in this room because I don't have to hold your attention because those backs of those pews, like you can't fall asleep in that thing. So um, if I get boring, I'm not even going to know because you're just going to be like upright the whole time. Uh, where's the Clinton folks? Man, I've been to Clinton. And... Uh, and church planting is hard anywhere you go, but I think the Lord has got to call you to Clinton. I mean, he might call you other places, but he has got to call you to Clinton. So when I heard that Clinton, I was in town, I was like, yes, God is alive, people, and the Lord is moving. I'm kidding. I'm not trying to heckle you too much, but I, I actually am, um, I'm really proud of uh, Especially, so like I'm at Cormdale Church in Omaha, Nebraska, and, and we're a part of the Acts 29 network, the Gospel Coalition network. And for the, lo- for the longest time, everything has been about planting churches in the coolest parts of the nation, right? And I'm actually, uh, I would rather see the Lord plant churches, not rather, because those big cities need some places, but like Dallas has a lot of churches, Okay. So can we get some churches into Clinton? Can we get some churches into all of these rural places that I'm driving by uh, all the way across Iowa from Omaha, right? I mean, this is, a, this is a farming heartland kind of area, and so I think we need the Lord to continue to raise up church planters to different places. And so um, that could happen to you. Watch out. The Lord might call you to plant a church in some small town in Iowa. Um, What's that? Or Nebraska. or Nebraska. Yeah, that was. I think that was a heckleback. I think that's what that was. Um, my aim today, my goal today, is to make things really practical for you, really granular, if you will. Um, we're going to spend the majority of our day talking just about helping people. Um, Ephesians, we're going to spend some time talking about what the Holy Spirit helps us in as we're trying to help other people. Uh, For the beginning here, we're just going to do a basic framework of counseling in the church. There's uh, a packet that you should have received by now. We're going to work through that. Um, I want to encourage talking about anxiety because nobody's anxious, especially in 2020. So it just seems like a throwaway thing. Uh, Actually, if anything has happened in 2020, it's that you've realized that anxiety is completely normal in all of humanity, and it's just been heightened. So we are about to do a lot of work over the, la- in the next couple of years, I believe, in the church around anxiety. So we're going to spend some time this afternoon talking a little bit more about anxiety. So my aim, my flyover this morning, is to just help you 
Go back to your particular churches, your gospel communities, your missional communities, your small groups. Let's just call them small groups because we got five or six churches represented and every church has to come up with their own name for small group, right? That's what we did. So I'll probably just call them small groups uh, for the remainder of the day. Um, but you're in the room because you are a learner, right? Uh, and you're in the room because you're a servant, you're a member of a church, you're an attender of a church, and you have felt like, I have got to gain some more insights, I've got to gain some more framework for how to help people. Um, so today, that's primarily what we're going to talk about. So you'll see uh, on this first sheet, um, this is basically the 30,000-foot view of counseling or care. You can interchange those words sometimes. You can even use the word discipleship at times because not all counseling I would say care and counseling is an extension of healthy discipleship. The goal is that individual Christians do their own part to contribute to the flourishing of the church. My goal as a member of a church, as a deacon of a church, or as a pastor of a church is to figure out how to help people do their own part to contribute to the flourishing of the church. The flourishing of the church is healthy people. We learn this in Romans 12, we learn this in 1 Peter 2, we learn it all throughout Scripture that the church is a body, right? And so it's not the pastor's job to do all of the work, and it's not the, the gal in the church's job who really enjoys meeting with people to do all of the work. It's the whole body's work, the whole body's job to do all of what the body needs to get healthy because we have the priesthood of my personal walk with the Lord and my family um, as the day goes on. The assumptions that we're making as we even talk about this stuff today is that the Lord will use pastors, leaders, friends, and professionals to make sense of things. I'm not belittling that we need professional counselors in our life. Um, sometimes people need to be referred to professional counseling. We have some professional counselors in our church that we refer to, and I've spent probably the last decade about who in Omaha or Lincoln or Council Bluffs uh, that we could, we could build a network with to send certain members, certain people to. So by the Lord's grace, we now have that. We didn't have that like a decade ago. It's really hard to find good gospel counselors that align with you and, and where your pastors or leaders feel really confident sending somebody, right? So um, I am not belittling the fact that we need professional counselors, but I do want to make a case for the fact that the people in this room can do a lot of the heavy lifting in the church. If you're a member of a church, you can do a lot to help people. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 6, the Lord has given me everything I need for life and godliness, right? So if I enter into a conversation with Ben, and I feel like I'm in over my head right away with whatever's going on in Ben's life, I've got to remember the Lord has given me everything I need to minister to Ben in this moment. Why? Because by God's providence, I'm friends with Ben. By God's providence, we're meeting right now on Wednesday morning at 7.30 at some coffee shop. And Ben has, by the power of the Spirit, shared some things with me, and he needs help. Okay? So the Lord, and that he will equip me in the moment for the things that Ben needs. Ministry has three parts. Okay? You have public ministry. This is the preaching, exhorting work of the pulpit on Sunday mornings and in other places. So there's a public presence to our ministry all of the time. That's why there's pastors putting in work to create sermons that you'll listen to. You have the personal ministry, 
This is where an individual and their spiritual formation, this is the me and Jesus part of Christianity. Uh, There's spiritual formation, there's spiritual disciplines, there's times with the Lord. That is personal. And so I need to be developed as as I'm in relation to Christ, as an ambassador of Christ. I have to commune with Christ and I have to be tethered to Christ in my personal walk, right? But then there's the relational ministry as well. The relational ministry involves community, it involves your pastor, your deacons, and it involves other members. And so this is where all of our granular stuff starts to happen. In our small groups, in our friendships, in meeting with pastors and leaders and meeting with other members. Um, the work of relational ministry, I'm going to talk about it, interchange those a little bit, must consider these three parts. I'm totally ripping these off from uh, Plass and Cofield, who they've been here to visit Sacred City at times, so those might be familiar. If you're not from here, you might not be familiar with those. These guys have really helped me understand three different categories, because when I'm meeting with somebody, it's not, when you're talking with somebody or a friend or somebody in your small group or whoever, it's not always sin that needs to be repented of. Sometimes it is. Sometimes people do need to actually do the repentant work with the Lord. The Lord is convicting them, and they need to be moved towards repentance. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But there's also wounds and weakness. So these three categories of relational ministry are my responsibility to consider every time I am trying to help somebody. Does this person need to repent of sin? Is there sin that is just evident, manifested in their life, and it's my job to help them work towards repentance? Or are there wounds, and what do wounds need? Wounds need healing, right? And so they might, I might not need to move them towards repentance. I might need to move them towards healing and restoration. Now, because of people's wounds, they are prone to sin, certain types of sin. So these aren't super clean categories but they, because they do intertwine a lot. But if somebody is wounded, I am not serving them if I'm asking them to repent, am I? Weakness. I have to acknowledge that people have limitations. I have to acknowledge that people are finite and that God is infinite. And so there are certain limitations, there are certain weaknesses in every single human being. I have certain limitations, you have certain limitations, you have certain weaknesses. And because we're created in the image of God, we are the only creatures that have a certain type of limitation, right? God has created us, he has created us in his image, but we are not him and so we're created as an image, but we are limited in the things that we can accomplish. The work of relational ministry or counseling must do two main things. I'm ripping this off from my good friend Bob Thune, who you might know or have heard of. This is work we've done together, uh, whiteboarded in his office over the years. The work of relational ministry comes down to these two things, descriptive and prescriptive. I want to talk a little bit about these things. I'm, I realize I'm just coming at you real quick with this first page of notes, and we're going to chop it up a little bit more and talk about it. But the descriptive part is the more you know, the more accurate I can be in a prescription, right? 
Um, recently, my son had to have shoulder surgery. He's a baseball player, and he had to undergo, he got four days deep COVID six-week baseball season, and he got four days deep into that and tore his labrum, had to have surgery, and uh, when we take him in for the surgery, before the surgery, they have to figure out, is it the labrum, what part of the arm, it, the shoulder is it, is it rotator, all of that stuff. If, you've been, if you're in the medical field, you know what I'm talking about, or if you've been through these types of injuries, you know what I'm talking about. And then right before surgery, they ask him all of these questions, which arm is it? And he has to tell them, well, it's my right arm. Like three times, I'm sitting right there, I'm like, guys, it's the right arm, like he's right-handed. They take a Sharpie, or a, an expensive Sharpie, probably, so they could charge my insurance for it. And they write on his right arm because they want to be very descriptive. They don't want to do surgery on his left arm, right? That would be ridiculous. So they're very descriptive in the shoulder work and in the medical field. And throughout the day, I will probably interchange or use some medical terms because medical terminology is really helpful when we're talking about caring for people. So the descriptive work is really hard work and it's really slow work, and it takes a lot of time. Because, I don't know about you, but counselors love to talk. One of the reasons that a lot of people go into counseling is because they really want to help people. Well, they really want to help people because they really want to say a lot of stuff. And then the person who's paying the counselor is like, okay, that's great. That was a great 50-minute sermon. I think my time is up, right? And you're going to charge me. Very few counselors listen well. Very few friends listen well. Our job as Christians committed to other Christians or even just to your neighbor is to figure out how to listen really well. Tell me what's going on. Listening. Not interrupting, not interjecting, and also not relating. Oh, yeah, I've been through that too. Let me tell you what you need to do. That's not true. That was my experience this is your experience. What you need to do to heal is probably a little bit different than what I needed to do to heal, or what I had to do to repent is, might be a little, look a little different from where you need to possibly repent. So the more you know, the more accurate the prescription can be. Um, before we move to prescriptive, uh, I have a wife and six children from 17 that's the kid who just had surgery. He's really expensive right now because he just had surgery. Uh, I, I figured out more expensive. So we have six of them. Boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, all the way down to six years old. Um, six of them, they're a ton of fun. And one of the things that's been happening uh, over the last three years of our life is my wife has been chronically ill. She has a fever. She has had a fever for three years with a few days of reprieve. There was a stretch where she had 27 days fever-free. But for the majority of the last three years, I don't want to know how many days that is or months that is. I'm not a math guy. I'm a pastor guy and a counselor guy, okay? It's, she's had a fever the majority of that time. In 2019, at the end of 2019, um, this thing popped up on my phone, and it said, congratulations, you've spent 40 days in a hotel. Because after the first visit, I realized we're going to be coming back. I might as well get the app, do the points thing, whatever. And it said, you've been, you've been at a Hilton hotel 40 days. I was like, this has got to be wrong. This can't be true. In 2019, we took five trips to Mayo, one in, at the end of 18. 
going into 2020, we decided, well, let's, let's just figure out how to embrace suffering. Let's figure out how to embrace long suffering, but not without trying. So lots of time at Mayo Clinic. I know Mayo Clinic better than I know Davenport, and I've been here a few times. Um, the doctors really want to figure it out. They do a ton of descriptive work at Mayo Clinic. They actually listen really well. My wife's doctor is more upset about her being sick than I am at this point, partly because we're Christians. And so I have a category for long-term suffering, and he does not. An unknown origin, which is her diagnosis, the sky's the limit. And so you can poke and prod all you want. And if you're a medical professional and you can't figure it out, you're burdened to figure it out. You're getting paid to figure it out. But the descriptive work is so intense and it's so long that at some point we've had to say, we tap. Now, we're not going to tap forever. And if anybody wants their wife healthy, it's me. Like, we have six children. We have a lot going on. We're doing the work of ministry. We're doing a ton of different things. And I would love for my wife to be healthy. But because we're Christians, we have a category for suffering. Right? The descriptive work is really important. Throughout the process, we figured out that she had thyroid cancer. That was actually really quick. It was a quick three months of our life. From like, hey, you have thyroid cancer to get the thyroid out. Okay, that's great. Three months of three years is really a quick blip on the radar. She had pneumonia in there where we don't want her to get coronavirus um, because she's compromised in the lung area. But as we know about coronavirus, we could just stay locked in our home forever, which is why we're here, right? But my point is this. The descriptive work is really important. We have sat with doctors. They have asked lots of questions. We have ran special tests, tests that your insurance does not cover to do more and more and more descriptive work. But what I appreciate about this process is they have not moved her to prescriptive work fast. They have not said, okay, it wasn't like a quick 20 minute in, 20 minute out, look at the chart, okay, well, I think you should take this. That would be unhelpful, right? I mean, we have, we have had a few of those experiences which land you at Mayo Clinic eventually. But the descriptive work is so thorough at Mayo Clinic they do such good work just trying to gain information. Your job as a fellow friend or Christian or member, whatever it is you're doing at your church, is to do good descriptive work. Tell me more. Your parents divorced when you were two. Tell me more. Did you grow up with your mom? Did you grow up with your dad? What was that like? What kind of job did he have? Um, you mentioned alcohol. Was it alcohol every now and then, like a drink with friends, or was it like alcohol, alcohol, like every night kind of alcohol? Tell me more. You're just asking questions. Um, David Paulson, in his uh, book, which we're going to uh, workshop a little bit later, and this is actually, if you're more interested in the care and counseling world, this book is phenomenal. Chapter 7 of this book, he gives X, what he calls point of getting to descriptive things. So... Um, even when you're just getting to know somebody, how do you spend your time? You, like, you say you have this problem. Talk to me a little bit more about it. What are your priorities with this? How do you want help? How do you live for yourself? Uh, how do you implicitly keep saying, if only blah, 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 then this would happen? So 
uh, he gives a ton of questions that you can be asking as you're doing the descriptive, fact-gathering type of work with your friend who is struggling. My point is this in all of descriptive work. Listen more than you talk. Sometimes people are seeking you out just because they need somebody to listen. Nobody will listen to them. Lots of people will preach at them. They have a phone. They can find any sermon they want on any topic at any given time. It's 2020. And they don't have to settle for a bad sermon or a bad topic on anxiety. They can, in three minutes, if it doesn't hold their attention, they'll find a better one. So they don't need content. They need companionship. They need somebody who will journey with them along this struggle. And your prescription should always have three elements to it. It should be biblical. It should be Christ-centered. And it should probably, most likely, will involve some type of repentance and faith, depending on what we're And it should, re, it should move towards repentance and faith. Later on, after lunch, we're going to workshop some Ephesians stuff. Just using Ephesians, we're going to talk about different scenarios, different cases, different things we can counsel, we can help. Just using Ephesians. The point of that is that will be biblical and that will be Christ-centered. So, that is the first page of your, of your notes, this framework for counseling in the church. Before I move, um, before I move on, um, what questions do you have about that 30,000-foot flyover? I was moving quick. from when you move from descriptive work to prescriptive work. Um, depending on your personality, and what I mean by that is, like, if it's not your first rodeo, and if you've seen this type of struggle before, you're going to want to move fast to prescriptive. Or if the nature of the relationship is this super close friend, and you know that you've got to say something hard, you're going to be hesitant. So the nature of the relationship matters a little bit. Um, I think you know from, which we're going to talk about this next, I think you'll know from the Holy Spirit, and I think you'll know from the nature of that relationship, because here's what's interesting. Um, in our tribe, we, we're really good with the Bible, and we're really good with community. We get a little weird about the Holy Spirit giving us what we need. And so we're going to actually talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in counseling um, and care in a moment. But I would, say, um, I would say you know sooner than you think. And the nature of that move is based on relational equity and courage. Um, I think we need a lot of courage. There's often times when I will kind of know I th or I think I will know, I will have an inkling about what I should do with this person or how I should help this and then sometimes I play back too far. I don't usually have the problem of just pressing that button too fast. Again, that's personality but, and some, somewhat of relational equity or whatever, but it kind of depends. It kind of depends on the scenario. Um, it, kinda, it, it depends on the relationship and it depends on the scenario. If it's completely black and white and clear, and it's sinful, and it's repentance, 
and there's good relational equity, and this person is saying, like, hey, here's my struggle. I need help. Okay, great. We might be able to do that in one or two conversations. If it's a really bad marriage, that's going to take, like, a good 11 to 12 to 2 years of work to try to help both people do the work they need to do. Any other questions about this first page, this flyover idea? Yeah. Yeah, it's between sin and wounds. Um, this is where we have to be really patient with people. And I have to be, uh, I have to have a, what, I, what I would call a, a holy curiosity about somebody's upbringing, their family of origin. And we don't think that way. One of the reasons we don't think that way is because we just tend to think as individuals, like American and individual Christianity and you got to make the most of you. And so we actually do the same when we're trying to help people. We're like, okay, Ben, here's your thing. This is you. What I, what I failed all the time to do is to realize, well, Ben is actually a son of somebody. Are your parents together? Are they divorced? Do you have any brothers or sisters? Where are you at in that lineup? Where did that sexual abuse come from? Was it your brother? Was it your Like, I don't do all that work all of the time in my mind because American Christianity and American individuality has shaped me implicitly and in my subconscious to just treat Ben as an individual. Now, is Ben an individual and does he need to do his own work with the Lord? Absolutely. But I, it's my job to figure out his family of origin. It's my job to figure out where all of this comes from. It's my, now, it's not, I can't blame it on his family of origin, but it's really important for me to figure out where those wounds come from and what's interesting about, I wish it was, I wish it was, it's really like this. And because I'm wounded, I'm prone to certain types of sin. And because I sin, it's probably from some type of wound, and then I keep sinning. Um, so how do I know when to jump? A little bit of biblical courage. But, but only if I feel like before the Lord I've done as much descriptive work as I can. Um, and then I can move towards, again, my job, right, is to take this soul, take this person, and realize the Lord has entrusted them with me, or to me, to a certain degree, and present them back to the Lord so that they can grow individually with the Lord as well, right? So, is that making sense? Let's talk a little bit more about that. What questions do you have around those three categories? Sin, wounds, weakness, those types of things. It's Saturday morning, y'all. Do you realize that? Saturday morning. Just think about what you were too long. Um, I want to, uh, okay, so. This gets, a little, this gets a little weird. I'm not a charts guy, but I have two charts for you today, actually. Okay? I think they're the only two charts in my life, um, but I'm trying to give them all to you. If you go to the very back of your packet, 
we're going to tease out this sin, wounds, and weakness thing a little bit more. Um, so, when people are coming to me, or they're coming to you, these are basically three things we, we do well if we keep in mind. Um, most of the time, well, most of the time these are all happening, okay? So this first thing is we are interpreters. People are interpreters. We can have the same exact experience. Uh, Paul Tripp says that we're meaning makers. So you and I can have the exact same experience of something, some type of event, some type of meal, some type of restaurant. This, actually, the best analogy here is movies. Anybody have that friend who's like, oh, you totally got to see whatever. And then you totally go see whatever, and you're like, that is a terrible movie. Like, I really wanted to go see this, but because you were so enthusiastic, but they thought it was the greatest movie ever. Why do they think that? Because they take meaning and they enjoy that movie in a different type of way than you did, right? They're interpreting the way the movie goes. They're in, everything is happening differently for every single person in the movie theater. So Paul Tripp says that meaning makers. So there might be a certain lie about God and his truth that I am believing. These are lies about God. And so as I'm helping this person... I'm trying to help them. You're, can anybody see this? How far back can you see this? Wow. I'm 40, so like I'd have to be sitting here. I got bad eyes now. So um, I'm trying to, this, uh, in this circle it says trust in God's word. Because when somebody's believing a lie about God, I'm trying to get them to understand truth. I'm trying to get them to trust God and trust his particular word, his particular sayings about a certain thing or experience. We've been working with this um, young family in our church. It's a horrible scenario, and it's on the verge of divorce. I can count on one hand in 19 years of ministry how many times I've counseled somebody towards divorce. This is one of those times. The wife keeps saying to me in our counseling meetings, I meet with her every other week, what she keeps saying is, she literally says this out loud, I keep waiting for you to tell me that this is my fault. It's not her fault. Everyone around her knows that it's not her fault. There's not one normal person, Christian or non-Christian, that would say, this is her fault. What does she think? Because her family of origin she grew up as a little girl knowing that everything was her fault. Both her mom and her dad assigned blame to her, so her husband has assigned blame to her, and so she actually relates to the Lord in such a way that this divorce must be her fault. It is not her fault. It is my job in that counseling appointment to affirm her and to let her know this is not your fault. That's not hard to say. It's very basic, it's very elementary, but what I'm doing there is replacing a lie with the truth, right? I do this with the word, we do it as we help people trust God. So my action 
uh, my hope here is to expose that lie. This is the work I'm doing as a helper, and then I'm trying to bring comfort and counsel. Some type of comfort, some type of counsel. Now, most of the time, people don't believe wrong things about God just because they've decided to believe wrong things about God. Now, there are certain people who have decided certain things are weird figure it out at a different church, honestly. Um, but most of the people, because of their wounds or their family of origin story, have, have ascribed certain things to God to be true that are not true. So our job as helpers is to help them interpret that, shift that, reinterpret that, and actually say, like, no, here's actually... Let's go rewatch it together. Good movies you rewatch, right? So let me help you trust. Let me help you. Let me give you some truth out of God's word that tells you that this isn't your fault. Or let me, let me, let me give you truth, scripture, tangible things that, that show you what truth is because it seems like you're off. It seems like you're believing things that aren't true. So my action there is to expose those lies and to bring comfort or counsel. My aim is for those people to eventually believe truth. This is pretty easy because if somebody else believes truth, I can believe truth, right? The example I just gave you about that gal, if, if I, as her pastor, whom she trusts, she doesn't trust a lot of people right now, can tell her that it's not her fault, she'll believe it in her head. It hasn't gotten to her heart yet, but she will go, okay, I believe you. Truth and help her believe true things about God. Okay, so idolatry and sinful desires. We are interpreters. That's step one. We are also worshipers. Worshipers, two-piece? Two one P. We're going one. We're going one. I'm really confident about it. We're going one. Idolatry. I get into sinful desires and I get into idolatry because, why? Because I'm a worshiper. I'm either worshiping alcohol, or I'm worshiping sports, or I'm worshiping my job, or I'm worshiping something other than God. So that is called idolatry. Now, why is that happening? Because I have desires, or to use James K. Smith and Augustine, I have loves. I'm a worshiper. Everybody in this room is a worshiper. This is why you're planting churches. This is why you're giving yourself to the work of church planting and to helping people because you know that the best life is one that desires God and one that is aimed at God. And you have experienced the fact that enjoying God is the best way to go through life. Your job in helping this person is to help them realize your job isn't going to do it, man. God will do it. He's going through right now, right? Your best life, the good life, is actually found in, in worshiping God. And this is why you are missional. This is why non-Christians come to your church and go, I'm intrigued. Why are you intrigued? Because these people seem to, like, be happy. These people seem to actually be enjoying the God that they keep talking about worship. This doesn't feel like a religion. This doesn't feel stoic. This doesn't feel empty. This feels like their hearts are alive here. This is why your neighbors are like, ah, oh, you're a Christian. That's interesting. It's not interesting in this like abstract way. They're actually intrigued because your life actually seems to be full. 
It seems to be robust because you're a worshiper and you're worshiping God, you're enjoying God, you're desiring God. Your action is to figure out how to help people praise God, meditate on God, and enjoy Him more. This is where personal worship comes in. And simply just do more worship. Go to church, read your Bible, and pray. If people actually did those three things, the world would change. If you grew up in the church, you heard, you heard that, right? I did not grow up in the church, so I'm assuming you heard this. Pray, read your Bible, and go to church. Those are the spiritual disciplines, right? There's a lot more, but man, we do well to just do those. That's your aim in idolatry. Your, your aim in idolatry is to say, hey, let me show you that your desire, your love for fill in the blank is just, this is predominantly always, uh, it's the, the elephant in the room with the tablecloth over it in a lot of men's lives in their 30s and 40s because they are giving themselves to work and vocation often and they won't talk about it, but their aim is money partly because they're nervous about not having enough money when they die or before they die. And they want to retire. They want to enjoy life. And America said, hey, make as much money as you can. You'll be happy. That's just not true. Um, I'm actually, uh, tomorrow when I preach at Sacred City Davenport, this is basically the category that that sermon will be in. It's, it's aimed at desires. It's aimed at your loves. Because... Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What? They will be satisfied. Hunger and thirst is desire language. People are hungering and thirsting all over the place right now. And they just keep trying this and they keep snacking on that. I'll, I'll try not to. I won't go there. I'll go there tomorrow. Okay? Sinful behavior. So we're interpreters. We're worshipers. I should use a different marker because I have OCD. But we are also emotional, okay? The church doesn't want to talk about this, or they want to talk about it too much, and we emotions or we misbehave out of our emotions. What I mean by the church doesn't want to talk about this is, um, what I really mean by that is they don't know how to talk about it. We don't know what to do with our emotions, and sometimes emotions dictate our doing. Whatever you want, do it. You want a new job? Quit your job and get a new one. Nobody's really saying like, hey, that's a pretty good job. You should keep it. Like you seem to go home at five every night. Like what's wrong with that? You're making pretty good money. Well, I'm just kind of bored. Okay, well, so what? You're bored? Like serve. There's plenty of stuff at church. There's plenty of stuff in your community you could be doing. Like this is what's super interesting to me. This, again, is, is often found in 30-year-old men, 40-year-old men who are like, oh, I'm just bored. Like, I just, I'm just bored. And I'm like, okay, great. If you're a factory worker and you're working in the morning and you're coming home at 4 p.m., then that's a really good life. Because, no, number one, nobody knows how to work in a factory anymore. And the next generation doesn't know how. They're, like, really deficient in that. If their phone won't do it for them, they're not sure what to do. So you should probably keep that job because we need that job. And then also... If it's a mindless job, go engage your mind elsewhere. Go engage it with the Lord. Go engage it with your community. I won't get too much onto that soapbox, but I'm just saying, so it drives my sinful life. I feel like doing it, so I do it. This is the hookup culture. 
right? And this is, sadly, sex, sexuality is all been made emotional in our culture. And so this is where sin finds us out, especially in the church. And so my hope for redemption, my aim for change, is godly behavior If you have children, you know what I'm talking about here. You want godly, god, godly behavior and positive emotion. You don't want negative emotion. You want positive emotion, or you at least want your negative emotions put into a bucket that you understand so that they're not dictating your life. And what I mean by godly behavior and your sinful behavior to replace it with godly behavior this too, especially in a gospel-saturated culture where it's just like, oh man, grace, grace, bro, yeah, sorry you blew it, grace, more grace, which is true, like that is the gospel, right? We forget this entire right column because we're like, well, we don't want to be too hard on you, man, but like, what do you want me to do? You've been talking about porn for three years. I realize addiction might be involved, enslavement might be involved, but what godly behavior have you replaced into your life, or are you just white-knuckling the bad emotional behavior? That is not going to work. I have got to give you something to do. I've got to give you an action. I've got to give you some scripture to memorize. I've got to give you a, a group to go to. I've got to give you something to replace actual behavior. Sounds a little legalistic. Sounds a little fundamental. It's not. I think it's just biblical. I think it's just what the Lord gives us to say, hey, Ben, stop lying to your wife. I could say that all day, right? And Ben would be like, okay. He, I didn't have to tell him that. He wants to stop lying to his wife. That's why we're meeting. Ben comes to me. I picked on Ben a lot. I'm going to pick on Clinton next. Um, but Ben comes to me and he's like, or his wife comes to me. We have a lying issue in our marriage. Okay, great. They're both Christians. Let's talk about it. Like, all three of us don't want Ben lying, right? What am I going to say? Ben, stop lying. Not super helpful, right? Ben doesn't want to be a liar. His wife doesn't want him to be a liar. That is just not good. That's not good counsel. Now, is it good or is it true? It's definitely true. What's helpful, though, to replace lying? Ben, here's what I want you to do. I want you to start practicing truth. So if Ben says, hey, where do you live? Do you live in Davenport? So if Ben says, I'm on my way home, and he's sitting right here, he's lying. Right? So he texts his wife, and he's like, I'm on my way home. No, he's not. He's sitting right here. On his way home is in his car, driving across the bridge right? So he, I, I have to help Ben reorient his brain, reorient what truth actually is. Actually, Ben, you weren't on your way home. You were leaving the building. So Ben, I want you to spend the next six months just practicing truth. Just text your wife and tell her where you're actually at. Expose yourself. Hey, I'm on the bridge. When you're actually on the bridge, not when you're leaving the building. So the church is really weird about this stuff because we're like, well, that's not really biblical. No, it's not. But it is behavior-oriented. And if Ben is, 
practicing sinful behavior all the time, I got to give him positive behavior to do. And over time, Ben becomes a truth teller, which is a virtue. And that's a godly virtue. And that's a virtue that we want replicate. And in the church, right? I'm really excited to hook my wagon. I'm going to put some 21-year-old dude next to Ben so that he can learn how to be a truth-telling kind of guy. So I have to... I have to help Ben understand godly behavior. And then what am I going to do? I'm actually going to give him accountability towards it. And discipline. Now you really think I'm a crazy guy. Because now I'm going to hold Ben accountable for telling the truth to his wife. How am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to actually build a plan. And I might actually put it on paper. We've done this with some guys because people need structure. Like, here's what we do in the church. We're like, Ben, stop being a liar. All right, let me pray for you. All right, Lord, make Ben not lie. Which, you know, that, that's powerful to a certain degree. I'm calling on the name of the Lord. I'm asking for change. But really what might help Ben, especially if he's not this way, because he's structured the whole Porterbrook thing, but if he's a like laissez-faire kind of guy, no structure around his life, grew up just kind of surviving and just flippant, and he's the guy who graduated high school, like that kind of guy, what Ben needs is structure. So I'm going to say, hey, Ben, we're going to meet again in six weeks, and not tomorrow and not next week. I need some water under the bridge here, and Ben needs a challenge. So I'm going to say, hey, Ben, we're going to meet again in six weeks, and uh, we're going to follow up on the truth thing, the lying thing. We're going to talk about it. Then when we meet in six weeks, I'm like, hey, Ben, tell me three stories where you told the truth. Because I have to give him muscle memory, right? It's like working out. So we're going to do lying and truth as the muscle memory thing. So I'm going to provide accountability for that. Now, accountability in the church has gotten a bad rap because we're like, accountability is really like, I haven't screwed up. Have you screwed up? Because we're keeping score. So, like, if you screwed up, I win. And if I don't screw up, then I win. And I just have to outlast you, right? That's what accountability's kind of been, especially in the 90s, that's what it was. Like, you need to be an accountability group. But my accountability has to have metrics. My accountability has to have some sort of framework so that I know when change is happening and I know when, um, I know when things are happening. So sometimes in our church, I'll build what is a redemptive plan for people, especially in marriage we do this, where we say, okay, this thing's off the rails, let's put Humpty Dumpty back together again, and instead of just praying about it, we're going to do this for a year. We're gonna, you're going to work on these things, you're going to work on these things, we're going to meet every other month to talk about it, checkpoints, etc. And then, you know what happens by the, first of all, everybody, nobody's ever been like, I don't want to do that. Everybody's like, thank you. Like, you're giving me something to do. Boundaries and structure around my life for me, which seems so nebulous when it's like spiritual and emotional. So like this is really helpful work. And in a year, what happens is people go, oh, I, th I think we're doing better. I think we're doing better because we've disciplined ourselves. There's accountability in place. The church knows, friends know, other people know. Okay, this is a really clunky chart. Uh, in your notes, what questions do you have about these things right here?
Did everybody hear his question? So what's hard about that is I can't believe for her, right? Um, so um, I might need to think about that for a minute. But I think, I think what I would do then, um, this is my off-the-cuff answer, I think I would go back towards descriptive work and start to actually investigate a little bit more on trust. Because she's not believing me, and she's not believing in her head, so why not? Um, is, is her trust wiring all just jacked up? And I need to go back and realize I can't actually give her anything to do right now or say. I can't say anything that's going to make her believe it anymore. So maybe I just backpedal to descriptive and ask more questions. Tell me about trust. Tell me about whatever. Dean, go ahead. Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. And, and she might not have a desire for change, right? So, like, we can meet and meet and meet and meet, but, like, I can't want something you don't want. So that's really hard in the church because you'll find yourself, okay, so if you're in this room, I will just say, you're in the top 15 to 20% of spiritual maturity in your church, okay? You can't want something for somebody else. You can't be married at change, and then that's why you're meeting, that's why, they, that's why they're talking to you, but at the end, where the rubber meets the road, they're going to feel uncomfortable because this means change, and any type of change is uncomfortable because at least it's familiar. So as long as I believe in my head, as long as that wife believes in her head that it could just be her fault, well... That's, that's decades of work for her. I'm undoing decades of work right now. I don't think about it. I'm just like, hey, just believe the truth. Like, it's not your fault, man. Well, that's scary. I've built my whole identity around it probably is my fault. It's probably my fault. It's probably my fault. So that's a really vulnerable moment for her. So I think I got to figure out the trust thing, the courage thing, the, hey, do you, do you want to stop living what Justin says, good. The emotional attachment there, the desire attachment, I got to move towards that to go like, hey, do you want it to be your fault? Probably not, right? So like, that's a little bit of a jerk question. But like, so I wouldn't ask that. But you see what I'm saying? Like, I would actually get towards like, okay, this is change. Like, this I think is what the Lord wants to do in you. He wants you to know that I'm assuming a bunch of things, right? As, that I'm not saying. So let me say them. You're a daughter of the Most High God. He is not holding you accountable for this. This is a biblical situation that your husband has just blown it. Your parents were really unloving. Let me tell you why. You've told me these types of stories back to you because that was just normal for you to tell me. So let me just, let me just paint this picture for you. This is not your fault. Now, it is absolutely true that her wounds on the other side or before I erase that, or on the other side, what's absolutely true is that because she's wounded, she moved towards a sinful guy. It's familiar. Questions? One more question. So, part of the 
yeah, I don't think it's always about lying, though. Um, so he's asking, like, could you guys hear him in the back? So he's basically asking, like, in the descriptive work, people have been lied to. So, like, is that our work in the descriptive work? I would say, yeah, like, it's part of it. It's part of it. In that scenario, for sure, it's, it's part of it, that I'm, the scenario I'm giving you. But also, my descriptive work is vast. It's family of origin stuff. It can go a lot deeper to um, scenario. Like, amazing couple shows up at your church. They're super excited that, like, this is the best church they've ever been to. They've also been to five churches in the last three years. Right? Well, that's weird. Um, but you're the pastor or you're the leaders, you're the small group leader, whatever you are, so you actually want to believe it. You're there, so you think it's the best church in town at least. So um, it's got some limitations, but you're like, cool. And they are leaders. I mean, they are like gung-ho. Year and a half go by. So they start leading stuff. You start, you're having them over for dinner. You're friends. Year and a half go by. Something happens with one of their children. You press on that a little bit as a friend or as a leader. They don't like that. Now they're leaving the church. Why is that? That's weird. Partly because they have spent their life running. Why have they spent their life? Like, why have they spent... Why have they been, why is this the best church, but they've been to five churches in three years? Um, because they're runners. They, they've been show, they're fantastic in the moment, but nobody's, they've, they haven't let somebody get underneath all of the survival tactics and survival mentality that they have. They don't like being vulnerable. They were vulnerable as kids, both of them. In fact, you found out that they were both divorced before they were remarried, and they both got cheated on. So the moment they were vulnerable, that backfired. So the descriptive work can also just be like, um, this is how these people are wired. And it's really important for me to know how people are wired before I enter into prescriptive work. So it can be about lying. It can be about all sorts of stuff. In the back. Mm. That's a really good question because, um, okay, so here's my analogy for that. I'm the care and counseling pastor at our church, and you should only be meeting with me if you're getting married or are married or have issues, right? That's really only like 10% of your life. People, the best analogy is borrowed from a year, years back. We spend the majority of our time on the highway, right? We sometimes have to get off at the rest area, but we don't ever stay at a rest area. Although Iowa's got some cool rest areas the closer you get to Davenport. I was like, that's a rest area? Like that thing is, looks like a hotel. It's got like all this calligraphy and stuff on it. I was like, man, I always got some dollars on their rest areas. In Nebraska, it's like modern rest area, scenic view. Pee at your own risk. It doesn't say that. <laughs> kind of kidding. So 70% of my life should just be on the highway. 20% of my life, rest area. Got to stop. 
got to get, but my point is to get back on the road at a rest area. I'm never like, the rest area is never my destination. 10% of my life is tow truck. Every now and then this car just won't move. Tranny fell out. I need a tow. But nobody's like, oh, I just love being towed. Let's just live our life behind a tow truck. Like, that's weird, right? So if somebody wants to keep meeting with you and they keep wanting to talk about problems, but they don't want to move towards change, it's time for us to break up. The way you break up is you say, hey, I've offered these kinds of things. You seem either resistant to it or you just like talking. So talking is what small groups are for. Like, we can do that in a different type of context, a different type of community. But I, especially the more and more I'm in ministry in somebody who wants to change. So I'm glad that you're friends with her, and I'm glad that you're investing in her, and I'm glad that, and you might even hurt her feelings a little bit if she wants, if you're breaking up with her. I've had to do this with my wife. My wife is way sweeter than I am. And we have this gal who, like, she's like a boomerang. Like, she'll, She'll be at our church for like nine months and she's all in and then she's gone for like two years, like a long time. But then when she's back, like right through the front door, she's looking for my wife and these three ladies. It's an it's a unhealthy relationship, right? So, so I've actually like, we've actually had to talk about like, hey, that's, that's not a wise investment of your time. A wise investment of your time is the guy who wants to change and she wants to, she wants to, now, I'm not discounting the guy who also needs your faithfulness. What she needs in her story is a lot of Christian faithfulness. But as far as like long-term investment, long-term discipleship, your best resources, you should invest in somebody else. And what you can say is like, hey, why don't you consider that stuff? And when you do X, back to the, prescription accountability dis- discipline piece when you do this we'll meet again when you actually read the chapter in the bible that i've actually asked you to read or when, you, when we've been going through this book together but you've never read like i do all this reading we come to the coffee shop to meet you haven't read work that you want to put in for your change i'm i'm um i'm over uh what's the word I'm putting too much into this, and you're not. And this is for you. So now, is it mutually beneficial? Sure, a little bit. But like, so yeah, I think, and people, especially churches, churches are magnets for people who just want someone to listen to their issues, which is great, but our job is to give them gospel truth, right? And the gospel requires change. That's what the gospel does. The gospel says, hey, there's your sinful life. Look how beautiful Jesus has made it, and look how beautiful he wants to keep making it. That's the justification piece, and the sanctification piece is ongoing. That's why you're here learning, right? Because you're just never quite satisfied in how you can grow with the Lord. Well, that's not the case for everyone in the church.
Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think, like, I'm, I made fun of this a little bit because it's clunky and it's a chart, and you should never be like, when you're about to meet with your friend, be like, okay, hold on a minute. <laughs> it sounds to me like you're not desiring God, right? <laughs> so you should start. Um, but I think, um, I think what's good to keep in mind, like buzzword-wise, is I'm, I'm really big on this right now. Like you re- it's really helpful to listen to people's desires, and it's really helpful um, to listen to their interpretation of life or their meaning makers. They've assigned meaning. Um, assigned meaning, but actually this is their experience, right? So you listen for their experiences, you listen for experiences that people have had, and then what they've done with those experiences, or what they assume about those experiences to be true, and then therefore true of God. And then you're also listening for what people want. Because people get what they want. Um, again, that's why if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, people get what they want, and people have a lot of experiences. This is why, so like, take for instance, um, the guy who grew up with a belligerent dad. He has, he didn't make a conscious decision to assign that God must be mean. But he's telling you that he's scared of God. Well, why is that? Because his earthly example is that he had a father who was belligerent, right? That's not his fault. But it's now my job to realize that's how he's interpreting who God is. And he's assigned that kind of meaning to him. That's his experience. He hasn't necessarily experienced God that way, but that's who he experienced his earthly father, so he's projecting that on God, right? So my role there is to just help kind of dissect that, show him that, say like, hey, I know this is your experience of dad, but like, what other dads did you see growing up? Or like, tell me, tell me a little bit more. So listen for people's experiences, listen for, listen for people's desires, um, because their life is aimed at their desires. 